You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Blake Schwartz, a professor in the math department here, who's going to talk to us about his time as a platoon commander and a special forces team leader. Blake, welcome to The Spear. Thanks very much, Tim. How did you wind up in the Army? So I came to West Point straight out of high school. I was one of those guys, Went looked at a few other colleges, really only applied to Annapolis and West Point chose West Point and have been in the Army ever since. And while you were here, what did you major in? I double majored in Spanish and German, which wasn't terribly hard because I already spoke Spanish pretty well coming in. How did you speak Spanish? Uh, seven, 7 through 12, took it in school. And then, so I started in at the 380s level coming in. I also, I went to a really good high school, so I placed out of a lot of courses and was able to start taking Spanish as a plebe when I came in as well. So it was a good, good major for me. And the German? German, I wanted, I knew... I went to West Point and got into the Army track because I wanted to do Special Forces. So picking up languages was one of my goals while I was at West Point. That led me to continue with the Spanish to try to develop it, and then I figured might as well gain some more useful skills. I, I knew that I wanted to go out, be an infantry platoon leader, and then a Special Forces officer, and I figured German and Spanish, and I took some Russian too. I thought those would be more useful skills than a math degree or an English degree. And judging what's on your sleeve, I think that's been successful. Uh, well, it worked for me, but now I'm in the math department. So I, I can. there's a caveat there that going back to grad school in a math-related field after not taking it for 10 years and not going past the core math program, that, that was a challenge. But that's a, that's a different story, I guess. Fair enough. So you graduated. You become an infantry officer. Walk us through your path there. So this was in 2003. I graduated. So the interesting thing about my time here, the most interesting thing probably, I showed up in 1999. And when I showed up, cadets who really wanted to see action and get to where they could look bad guys in the face went to Korea. That was the hot spot because you could be up there on the 38th parallel, look across the ground and see guys who were, might be enemies of America or at least were enemies of our allies and whom we'd fought in the past. Korea was it. Then a few weeks after affirmation, when I showed up for Cal year, 9-11 happened. So that was 2001. And I watched the planes hit the World Trade Center from the basement of Thayer Hall, and that changed everything for all the cadets here at West Point. Uh, by the time I graduated two years later, it, everybody was deploying. You know, Korea wasn't the hotspot anymore. Everybody was going to Afghanistan, and really, it was 03, Iraq was kicking off then too. So it turned into every division had 
at least brigades, usually division headquarters, were on the patch chart, and everybody was coming back with combat patches. And the question was not whether you're going to deploy. It was, were you going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan? So that was the army that I hit in really 2004, by the time I finished Ranger School and the Officer Basic course. Now it's Bolick for current guys, but it was just the Officer Basic course for me. I did Airborne School at Fort Benning because I was there, and I did the Mortar Leader uh, the mortar, the infantry mortar leader course, MLOC. Uh, so a lot of schools to get through. It, it was 2004 by the time I went out and hit my unit and then went straight to Afghanistan. And what unit was that? I went to the 25th Infantry Division, and it was 2-5 infantry when I got there. And so I, I branched infantry and joined 2-5 infantry. I got married right after I graduated. So I took my new wife to Hawaii got settled in, got our household goods, and then in a few weeks, I was in Afghanistan, taking over my platoon there. I fell in on a platoon that did not have a platoon leader. He'd, he'd rotated out, and and they'd been in country for just a few months, so I had most of the year-long deployment over there with my initial platoon in Afghanistan. What was it like falling in on a platoon that was already deployed? Challenging. As a second lieutenant, you, you come out of all the schools that you've had, West Point, followed by Ranger School especially, but nothing really prepared me for the desert environment. And there's always some doubt. You know, I know that I can do the doctrinal ambush well, but how does that translate to patrolling on the streets of Afghanistan in this dusty little village where nobody speaks English and there's no power and you can't, and the bad guys don't wear a uniform, so you're never really clear exactly what you're going to do. Uh, However, I was fortunate I had some extremely competent NCOs. All my squad leaders are all-stars. If I were to list my, the most competent NCOs that I've encountered in my Army career, and I'm an 03 guy, so we're going close to 20 years now, those first three squad leaders that I had were, would be way up there. And my platoon sergeant, my, my company commander later confided in me that he had concerns because the platoon sergeant he had seen as not being terribly strong, but we worked great together. We made a fantastic team. Um, for whatever reason, we just clicked really well. And, and so I had a really great experience with the leadership in my platoon coming in, and that made things a lot easier for me. I saw some fellow lieutenants come in and take platoons and had challenges with their platoon sergeants, and some of them had other NCOs who weren't quite as strong, and they struggled with some things that I didn't because I had a little backing. I had people who would tell me, sir, maybe we should do it this way. Oh, yeah, you're right. Let's let's do it that way. Uh, not all lieutenants had that. So you've got to be go in with open eyes and an, make an honest assessment for yourself of where the strengths in your platoon are and what role you need to take. Uh, for me, I was able to do kind of the classic platoon leader role where I'm setting direction, leading by example if I can, and then the NCOs are, are making stuff happen. It, it worked really well. Where in Afghanistan did you deploy? So a really interesting part of my story, we deployed to Aruzgan province. Actually, the unit had been in Ghazni before, but when I got there, they were just moving to Aruzgan province. So my first real mission coming in was to establish this new new patrol base. So if anybody's been to Aruzgan province, we built FOB Anaconda. This, they called it a FOB, but it was really like a company cop way up in the northeast near the town of Khazaruzgan. And we patrolled kind of all over northern Aruzgan in vehicles, sometimes dismounted patrols. Sometimes we do air mobile, meaning go in by helicopter, stay in an area or march across an area for a while, and then come around uh, and, then, and then return to the base, uh, Fab Anaconda. So it was very challenging in the wintertime. It was up in the mountains. And it was very challenging logistically. So everything we got 
pretty much had to be airdropped in. We'd get a ground convoy maybe once every three months. The weather would prevent it. The enemy situation, IEDs on the roadway would prevent uh, logistics cops, they call them, uh, packages from rolling up. We were really reliant on airdrops. They'd drop pallets of water, blivets, they'd fly blivets of fuel in by helicopter, sling load vehicles if we needed replacements, that sort of thing. Uh, and it was a very austere place at the beginning. There were a few concrete buildings. Most of the soldiers were living in tents for a long time. Event eventually, we got connexes to them. Uh, but for a long time, we were in tents with headquarters elements in a few concrete buildings, as I said, with no power. Also, no running water. So this was when the when the weather started to turn colder. We didn't have with no running water and freezing temperatures. Things got very difficult. Just basic things that you take for granted: washing clothes. You'd wash your clothes in a bucket. You'd hang them out on a line to dry. Well, come November, December, you couldn't hang them outside anymore because they just freeze on the line. So all of a sudden, the two buildings that we had were full of everyone's clothes because the guys in the tents didn't have room in their tents to hang clothes up. So clothes were just hung everywhere, and that's what we had to do. No showers, except when you drove back on a major combat convoy back to the big base at Tarankout, which was the provincial capital. That's where the battalion headquarters was, and the brigade headquarters as well. Uh, we didn't. That's when we'd take a shower. So I went, you know, a month and a half, two months sometimes without taking a shower. You just do what you can with wet wipes. Uh, so, so my first Afghan experience was a, a lot more challenging logistically, a lot less comfortable than what a lot of people saw later when they went and lived on big, well-developed fobs that had MWR services and, and, you know, running water, hot showers, all that stuff. How often did you see your battalion or brigade leadership? We would see them weekly, at least, via satellite communications. So we would dial into the, the I think we called it a CUB, a combat update brief back then, and the company commander would give his piece, and if there was something special for my platoon, I'd talk a little bit to the senior leadership, uh, the battalion command. Otherwise, he would fly out occasionally. I don't remember exactly how frequently, but he definitely made it out there uh, at, at least once a month. He made it out to, to all the different company cops, of which we were one. So we'd see him face-to-face -face and brief him on major things that were going on. Mostly the company commander did, of course. And then we'd talk to him regularly. I know the, the company commander talked to him at least every other day, probably every day. He probably gave him an update. Um, but I'd see, him, I'd see him once a week. And did you have a line platoon or a, a weapons platoon? Yeah, it was a line platoon. Um, we were, the weapons platoon actually got split out amongst the other three platoons. So we had the heavy weapons coming with us. And as a lot of people in Afghanistan saw, really your task organization changed a lot for, based on what your mission was. And for us, it was a lot of patrols, a lot of mounted patrols and, then, and a lot of dismounted patrols. And the, I saw units across Afghanistan, especially later on, not so much when I was a, just a platoon leader, but we'd see engineer units who had the route clearance mission, but they were also doing infantry-style patrols because there weren't enough infantry units just to cover down on all the ground. So field artillery units would run the big fire systems at the bases and do counter-fires and all the things that field artillery people do, and they'd be out doing dismounted patrols because there just weren't enough infantry to do it. Uh, so... I saw a lot our task organization across across the deployed force really really mimicked that. You'd put the heavy weapons on top of the vehicles, and then you'd have the gunners in your vehicles, and then you'd roll with the squads that you had in your platoon. 
the lessons you learned as a platoon commander, did they transfer over as you transitioned to special forces? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, one first lesson, I saw the value of tremendous soldiers and NCOs, and that stayed with me for the rest of my army career. And I don't think that is just an infantry thing or a special forces thing. That, that would be true no matter what branch you have. But certainly for tactical proficiency, that, that lesson came over as well. One thing that drew me to special forces is that I could, I, instead of a company command, I would have a command of a 12-man team. You know, so I'd have a warrant officer, an E-8, and then a bunch of relatively senior enlisted. I think my most junior guy hit the team as an E-5, and within a few months he was an E-6. So most of my time on my team, my jo- most junior guy was a hand-selected E-6. And I came to rely on the professionalism of my NCOs early as a platoon leader, and then that lesson carried through definitely into my special forces time. After your approximate year in Afghanistan, did you return to Hawaii? What happened next? Yeah, so I came back to Hawaii, and we came up on the patch chart for Iraq next, and so deployed to both as an infantry, as a young infantry guy, finished my lieutenant time in Hawaii. And then as a first lieutenant promotable is when you can apply for special forces. So as an, that's as an officer. Enlisted people have a much broader, much broader range of opportunities. But for an officer, it's just that one time in your career. They want you to be, they want you to come out of the special forces pipeline as a relatively junior captain, do your company command equivalent, which is a team command in SF. So if you're too, too senior as a captain, you can't go. You, you want to apply as a first lieutenant promotable or a very junior captain. And that's what I did. So after the Iraq deployment, I got got selected, had my Spanish scores on my record, on my ORB, so I got sent to 7th group. I came out into 7th group in 2008, at the very end of 2008, and deployed with them to Afghanistan in 2009. So the the recurring, the, the interesting thing here was that I went back to Aruzgan province again with my special forces team and saw the same area that I had patrolled as a as an infantry platoon leader I was back there as a special forces team leader and it wasn't I wasn't back in Kazaruzgan at Fob Anaconda but I was in Tarankout I'm it was in Tarankout at the capital sum and I was in Aruzgan province going kind of all over the province doing the special operations mission there so I, in some ways, I had an advantage because I knew a lot of the local players, some of the local, really Afghan warlords, but militia leaders that we worked with, and some of the enemy networks that I had seen and had contact with back in 2004 were still there in 2009. So uh, that, I think that gave I think that gave me advantage knowing the lay of the ground a little bit. After graduating from the Q course, how much time did you have with your team before you deployed? I got there in time to do the train up. So instead of going to a CTC, like most units will go to JRTC or NTC to prepare for deployment, especially to the desert. It works that our CTCs like NTC are out in the desert. Uh, I got to do the train up where we went to Dugway Proving Ground, Utah. We did about six weeks in Dugway Proving Ground, Utah, doing special operations missions. Um, We had actors playing the force. We did the kinetic operations similar to what we intended to do. We practiced infiltration mechanisms. So I got to go through all that with my team, do some assessments of my team's strengths and weaknesses, and figure out what it would look like and get ready to deploy. So my timing was pretty perfect. I got there just in time to join them for the pre-mission train up. 
You talked about direct action. Was that your mission? So a special forces company has six teams that are separated by a specialty, and mine was a direct action team. So that was more my specialty than it was for a lot of the other teams. But when we deployed to Afghanistan, each team went to a different province. So yes, my team was my team had specialized training on direct action especially, but I wasn't going to another team's province to go execute that mission. They were doing that. Uh, similarly, the team that focuses on mountain operations wasn't coming into my province either. So I, was, I had a little bit of a training advantage with direct action, uh, but similar to the infantry and the field artillery and the engineers and everyone else falling in and doing the mission requirement, we really were responsible for the special operations in our province. Who was the battle space owner in Terrancot at the time? It was Task Force Aruzgan, led by, it was an international, a multinational uh, headquarters, and it was led by a two-star Dutch general, which was interesting, actually, as we got into the battle space and started coordinating with him. One of my team's missions was to set up a new firebase out kind of in the middle of nowhere to interdict the lines of communication for the bad guys coming in. So... Aruzgan is sort of central southeast Afghanistan, and it was well-placed to intercept people who were coming from Pakistan to the southeast uh, and from Kandahar in the south of the country. They would kind of spread out from there. They would come from Pakistan into Kandahar and then spread to the rest of the country. Aruzgan province was well-positioned to interdict a lot of those lines of communication to where those people were trying to go. So... I wanted to send my, I wanted to take my team out and establish a new firebase, which I was charted to do, go establish a new firebase. And I was trying to pick where it would be, but the battle space owner had the final say on where my special operations little combat outpost was going to be based. So I became, I went over there and started working with them. And this was a little bit of a leadership challenge explaining to my team why I was spending so much time over with the Dutch headquarters. But telling them, look, if we want a say in where our combat outpost is going to be, then we need to be engaged with the leadership who's making this decision. So about twice a week, I would sit in on planning sessions with Task Force Aruzgan, and I became the planning cell leader for one of the courses of action, which I appreciated. The Dutch general let me pick one of the courses of action, say, let's let the American soft guy put it where he wants, that'll be COA A, and then let's let the Dutch and Australian planners do COA B. Uh, so I had a, a, a international, a multinational group on my planning cell, and we picked how it would work and how we wanted it to be. And as often happens, in the end, we, the, the, the general kind of compromised between the two plans and picked something that he liked, and it was a little bit closer to, the final location was a little bit closer to his base in Tarankout, the provincial capital, uh, then I would have placed it, but that made it easier to sustain. And it was a little, but it was, it was far enough out for me that I could get out to what I wanted to get out to. As you're thinking about this interdiction mission, did the Special Forces history in Vietnam come back to you at all? Special Forces history in Vietnam a little bit, yes. Also, there was a new concept that was being developed at the time called village security operations. And my mission didn't call it that. We were sort of the precursor to VSO, but if you read about VSO, you can see what we were trying to achieve. Create a region that could defend itself from the bad guys. So we'd go out to villages that weren't used to historically supporting each other when attacked because they were of different tribes, different clans, 
uh, and just didn't have those historical connections. But we'd try to organize them in a way such that they could defend themselves when, say, the Taliban came in and tried to impose itself on them. If they had our support, they knew whom to call if they needed backup, and the villages could support each other. That was the, that was the concept behind VSO, and we were on the front edge of it trying to see if it was going to be feasible. So we'd go out to these villages that were along these rat lines for bad guys and try to see if we could convince them not to let the bad guys into their villages and offer them support to do it and show up and show that we were friendly to them but not to the bad guys. Uh, so it, it almost reminded me of the British model where they really created safe villages and then really controlled who entered and, and left. So just controlling the territory and the population through the territory. That's That was a model that I started thinking of, although we didn't have anywhere near the level of control that the British did back for that operation. So it was a mix of things too, because I did have a partnered Afghan force. At the very beginning of my deployment, we drove up to Polisharki all the way across the country. That's north of Bagram. It was the training center where graduating battalions, they called them Kandaks, is the, just the word for, for uh, battalions. So graduating Kandak, battalion would come out and we brought them all the way across Afghanistan along the major ring road to the east of the country through Kandahar and then up into Aruzgan province and we and they became our partnered force for all these missions so I was both trying to build the local village capacity to defend itself and introducing the Afghan National Army to the area um, and using them to go after the bad guys so it was one thing that we saw that was interesting. We had the partnered force. I had a battalion as a as a partnered force. I mean, a few hundred. It's not not the size of a America of an American battalion, but it was probably about two hundred Afghan soldiers with an Afghan I think he, he, lieutenant colonel in charge and some other officers. And you know, I had twelve special forces guys. The other other American and Allied coalition elements rolling around would have they'd have an Afghan partnered force, but to a large extent, it was more American or more ally than Afghan. So the Dutch SOF and the Australian SOF would roll in with 50 or 60 Western, very well-trained SOF operators and three Afghans who really served as their interpreters. I rolled around with 12 Americans if we weren't doing split operations and usually a hundred Afghans, because not everyone would go. We'd leave some people at the base, and we'd rotate on mission cycle, just like a normal battalion would. So, uh, so a very different dynamic. We really were putting the Afghans first, trying to achieve that intent. We're, we're building their capability, so they had to be doing the missions. But that was the intent back then. And so the story that I really wanted to, to get to today was an interdiction mission where I was trying to go into one of these villages where we hadn't been, and I had read about it and heard about it, reports, going back to my platoon leader days when I was in Aruzgan province, there was this place called Langar Valley, and it was north of Kandahar through this really steep mountain pass. You had to go through the mountain pass to get to Kandahar, and then as you came north through the pass, if you took a right-hand turn, you'd go deeper into the mountains and find this place called Langar Valley. So they had a history of coming out of the valley and ambushing uh, convoys trying to use the really one route between Aruzgan province. And Tarankat was a major city, so there was a lot of traffic going into, into Tarankat from Kandahar when the route was open. But it was closed a lot because uh, Taliban, other terrorist network fighters would close it 
the local warlord in the area. He worked with us because it was in his best interest, but sometimes he closed it to other allied forces because he didn't have a relationship with them and they didn't provide him anything. Uh, so I had to intervene on their behalf a few times. Coming through this route, it was called Route Whale, had high mountains on both sides, and it was a great ambush point. The, the bad guys would put IEDs down on the route, and there was not a good way to get off it off the route with vehicles. So you'd have a route clearage package, a route clearage package that had to go through first in front every time you ran through it, and it always hit five to a dozen IEDs. And then once they hit IEDs, then the Taliban would open up from on top of the mountains. And a lot of our allied partner tactics were just to try to push through. And they really weren't successful with it. So sometimes we had to go down and help them get through, we being American forces, not, not necessarily me. But we'd send, uh, we'd send packages down there with the knowledge that, hey, what you have to do is go clear these guys off the high ground. So the Americans with our Afghan partners, we'd dismount, go clear the high ground, and then open the route back up, keep moving back up toward Task Force Aruzgan. That happened, that happened multiple times back in 2009. And there was a major warlord named Matula Khan who owned the territory down there. And by getting in with him, we were able to keep the route open a lot better because he would send his guys to go clear the high ground and we could count on him to, to do it. Back to my trying to get to Langar Valley. This was a place that Matula Khan couldn't, didn't, didn't go into because it was too, too strongly possessed by the bad guys. I say the bad guys. It was the Taliban and probably Haqqani Network. There was intel that all kinds of bad people were in there because, again, it was on this this route between Kandahar flowing north. Uh, so, again, Pakistan to Kandahar, up north into Afghanistan, all kinds of bad guys were there. I'd had it as a, a con-op, a um, planned operation for us to go in there for some time. And the first time we tried to go there, Something else happened that was high priority. I can't remember where it was, but a major engagement happened, and all the aircraft that were going to deliver me into Langar Valley, you know, by surprise as as nightfall lifted, uh, they they all got diverted and couldn't go. So my operation was delayed that time. Then we had a hard time coordinating for the aircraft again because of operations across the rest the rest of the country. So we decided to go in by ground. So there was a friend of mine from West Point, he was a year younger than me, but he was a company commander in the 82nd, and he was based out of Tarrant and I ran into him and we were talking about it and told him a little bit about it, and he said, yeah, he wanted in. I said, awesome. I just went from 12 Americans to a company of Americans plus my Afghan force going in, and we set off for, for Langar Valley, and it was going to be about an eight-hour convoy so by American driving standards, it's not all that far, but the pace that you have to take to go through these, this desert terrain, especially when you have known areas where there are IEDs, where what you really have to do, I didn't have a route clearance package. So what I did in areas where there'd been IED packages, IEDs placed before was stay off the lines of drift and dismount. So we'd dismount with some of my soldiers, we'd dismount with a bunch of Afghans, and the Afghans and a few of my soldiers would go in front and make sure that there weren't IEDs that were coming through. And we found IEDs. And we'd get rid of them that way, but that way the vehicles didn't hit them. It's an eight-hour movement, really, down there. And about four hours into our movement, we're halfway there. We were going along this very narrow mountain route. So 
it's not a road for if you, for for those of you listening who haven't been to Afghanistan, which may be most. Roads is a, is a loose term. It's just kind of hard packed sand in most of the places. Uh, looks like moon dust. It's not like sand you'd find on the beach here. It's very very fine. Blows in the wind, and gets packed down by vehicle traffic. Uh, so this route that we were taking went through some mountain passes and it was just this hard packed dirt and I'm in a very heavy MRAP at this time because of the IED threat. I could have taken special operations. We use, they call them GMVs. They're just Humvees with extra stuff on them. We put extra weapons on them, uh, a little bit of extra, uh, places to store things, extra communication suites, but it's basically a Humvee. And that didn't provide enough protection from IEDs for me on this. We, it was a long movement through some known areas where we had IEDs. So we took our MRAPs. And going through this going through this route, four hours from the base, halfway to Langar Valley, we're on a narrow route, and my driver asks me, so I, as a, you know, I'm the patrol leader, and I'm in the make third vehicle or so. So I watch the two vehicles in front of me, and they're really close to the edge of this drop-off in this mountain pass. And it's on the passenger side, on the right-hand side of the vehicle. It's, it's rocks on the left-hand side, and about a 20-foot drop on the right-hand side. And it's pretty narrow. So my driver asks me, hey, sir, can you open the door and take a look and tell me how much room I have over there? So we're, we're going, you know, four miles an hour trying to make sure we don't have an issue. And I, I say, yep. So I open the MRAP door, which is this big, heavily armored door, which weighs about 400 pounds, we found, because it's got all the armor on it. So I stick my head out, try to look at the ground, what's going on there. And I see, under the front tire, I see this packed dirt just give way underneath the front tire. So I yell something that I won't repeat for this podcast. Try to sh- slam the door shut. And I know you can't see me, but you'll have to believe me when I tell you that I cannot one-armed curl a 400-pound door. So I failed to get the door shut, and my seatbelt saved my life as our vehicle rolled over two and a half times and landed upside down at the bottom of this 20-foot fall. So we're upside down. I'm hanging from my seatbelt. So is the driver. The guys in the back of the MRAP, we had about six people back there, other team members, an interpreter, my, my tactical air control guys, JTAC. Uh, they were all in the back, and they're getting jumbled around too. Uh, and that ended up that ended up being the end of that mission, unfortunately. So we had a few people injured. We called in a medevac. Um, had to go had to go back, and we convoyed back to the MRAC's credit. Sitting upside down, it dumped all of its fluids, hydraulic fluid. Everything was gone, and it still drove back. Uh, it was a heck of a lot of work for the engineers, the Mantech guys, the contractors to, to put it back together again when they got it back, but it drove all the way back to the base. And I was fortunate that I had the 82nd guys with me because they were behind me and my buddy, the company commander, came out and saw me and I was bleeding a little bit out of my head, nothing too bad, uh, but I'm sitting there trying to direct it and he comes up and says, hey, Blake, you want me to pull your vehicle back over for you and get on the roadway? I was like, you... You know, you know how to do that? He said, oh, yeah, we've rolled, we roll MRAPs every week. I've got a battle drill for it. I said, yes. And I called the SF guys. You know, my warrant was, was coordinating stuff. I said, Ronnie, he was my warrant officer, said, let, 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 let Mike and the 82nd guys pull this thing over. They know what they're doing. I said, okay. So we watched them, and they, hooked, they hitched uh, tow cables to the corner points and flipped it over once and flipped it over again, pulling with their winches in their vehicles. And it was right side up. And they got it back up on the roadway, and it took them about 20 minutes. It would have taken me three hours to try to recover this thing. And then it, it drove back, and we had we waited for the 
medevac uh took a few of the guys the interpreter my jtac was kind of was pretty shaken up he had a broken rib and some other issues and then uh and then unfortunately that ended the langar mission because without my jtac and with a vehicle damage before we got even to the objective we decided it was best to, to push it till later so now i'm on that's strike two trying to get to langar now then maybe maybe a month later we went to try again so we took our mraps I took a smaller Afghan force this time. I think I had six Afghan vehicles going with me. So we'd mix the formation up, but this time I think I had three of them in front and then the Americans in the middle and then the more Afghans at the back. Uh, we often tried to keep the American vehicles together when we expected heavy contact. So this time we made it all the way down there, uh, seven hour convoy about to within one terrain feature of Langar Valley. And we stopped and we climbed some mountains to look into the valley and see what was going on. And we were in the middle of nowhere, no people around, no, no houses around, nothing, no lights even. So we stopped in the desert and we did a RON, which is short for rest overnight. Slept in our vehicles thinking, all right, just before daylight, we're gonna roll up onto Langar Valley and see what we can see. And we go to approach it. This time we, we get there successfully. And as we come around the base of the mountain that leads into Langar Valley, and see the first houses. Most of the houses are quiet, but there's a guy who's probably 16 or 17 years old, uh, and he had his cell phone out. And again, this was, even he was talking on it, and again, this was just before daybreak, so 6 a.m. Seems like a strange thing to have happening. Unfortunately, the, the river that made the valley was between him and me. There was no good way to get over there across to him. Uh, there was Again, a big ravine, 30, 40 feet down to the river. Rocks on my right-hand side as I'm going now on, this, on the other side of the river. Uh, rocks on my right, 30-foot drop-off to the river on my left, and he's on the other side in the house on the other side of the river. So one of my guys asked me, sir, what should we do with this guy? I said, well, we, we really can't detain him. There was no bridge for us to get over there. If we had backtracked and tried to get over him or tried to dismount and go through the river, Probably not impossible, but I decided that we weren't going to do it. I wanted to keep moving into the, into the valley. So tactical decision, looking back, I don't know whether it was right or wrong. I'm pretty sure that he was the lookout for the Taliban. I mean, what else would he be doing standing on his rooftop out there with a cell phone at 6 a.m.? But I didn't feel like we could engage him at that time. I mean, we talked about it. We talked, is it, it would have been easy enough to kill him uh, and keep driving on, but... What if he wasn't a bad guy? Unfortunately, no uniforms. That was the nature of the of the fight that we were having. And really, the rules of engagement at the time, you needed to have positive identification, which, which makes sense. Um, and I didn't have that. Even though I was 90% sure, well, there's that 10%. What if I just shot a 16-year-old kid for, for no reason because he was talking to his mom on his, on his phone? So we continued into Langar Valley. Um, and there was really only the one road in. It's this long, narrow valley, the road that we were on. Steep rocks on the right-hand side going way up now, probably 50 feet over our heads with this narrow roadway like the one I'd fallen off of on the previous mission. And then a steep drop-off down into the valley with all the houses down in the valley. And once you're halfway through the valley, then the road comes down and you're in the village. So our plan was to drive the road, halfway through the valley, come down into the village, and then we'd have the front half kind of isolated. We had some of our Afghan troops stay at the front end of the valley, and we were gonna sweep from the middle back toward them. 
And then we would make a decision. Did we need to spend the night? Uh, could we finish the valley in one day? But we wanted to go through the whole place and see what we could find. Uh, we had intel that there were some high-value targets who were probably there. We figured we could at least get a bead on them, find some weapons caches, and also disrupt it. Make this, make this place known to be not safe as an insurgent hideout. So wanted to clear the village using that basic scheme and maneuver. So as we're on this road and we're, we've got the houses down on our left and we are getting sort of close. We're, we're maybe a half mile from the point where the road comes back down off the mountain and you, can, and you can actually maneuver into the village and do what we wanted to do. We're a half mile from that point when we get ambushed on the roadway. So first I heard something and it was RPGs going off, you know, big, big whoosh sound. We're trying to figure out where they came from because nobody really saw it well, but they blew up, they exploded down on the roadway off to the left of us and down in the trees close to the houses where on, on our left-hand side as we're driving. So that would have been the north as we were driving, driving east. So we figured out that they had come from the high ground above us. And I think that they weren't really able to hit us. Uh, maybe it was poor marksmanship, but they also had... Uh, to, we were kind of masked by the terrain because the rock slope was so steep they would have had to really lean out to try to to try to aim the RPGs at us. And I think that's what happened. They didn't lean out far enough. They couldn't quite gauge them. But for whatever reason, about six or seven RPGs, I think, went off, uh, but none of them hit any of our vehicles. But simultaneously, then down by the houses that I could see on my left, maybe 150 meters away, there's we saw muzzle flashes from machine gun fire, and it's just now starting to get light, so it was it was, it was clear. You know, I could see where everything was, um, but it was it was still dark enough. You could clearly see muzzle flashes, tracer fire, all that stuff that you can see even better at night than during the day. So they open up from several different locations down there, and the the question for me then is what what do I do? I mean, do I try to dismount and and maneuver on these guys? Do I stay on the roadway? Uh, because I'm in MRAPs, remember, and I can hear the bullets pinging off MRAPs. Most of them are not. Most of them are hitting rocks well above me, well below me. Uh, their you know enemy marksmanship was not so great, but they're they're spraying with machine gun fire. So what I decided to do was stay in the vehicles and engage. We had machine guns on top. You know, we had Mark 19s, and I think we had two M2s, the 50 caliber machine guns, a Mark 19, and we had a minigun on top of one of our vehicles. So we used those instead. And a few of my guys opened their doors, stayed behind their doors for cover, and aimed up the hill until we were sure that there was nobody else up there with RPGs or anything like that. And the rest of us engaged down the hill toward where we saw the machine guns, but the heavy fire was coming from my, my mounted weapons on top of the vehicles. So the question was, how could I maneuver? Because if I'm staying on this roadway, I've got a steep cliff on my right, I've got a steep drop-off on my left, I couldn't drive off the roadway. So we maneuvered as best we could, kind of around a bend in the curve so that we could see in as many directions as we could with my four vehicles in the middle. And that was my immediate concern because it was very hard to maneuver the Afghan vehicles. We'd done some drills with the Afghans where we tried to uh, use our interpreters, who I had an interpreter in my vehicle and every vehicle had one, use our interpreters and tell them how to maneuver. But I knew from the exercises that we'd done in the past that it was going to be hard to get them to do really what we wanted. So 
I focused more on my four vehicles and trying to establish security, suppressing fire, engaging the en- enemy, and doing what we could there. And then I tried to get the Afghans to push farther out front um, and maybe see if they could get down into the valley where I could observe them and make them a, a maneuver force. That that never happened, which is not surprising um, because without without going with them as a maneuver force, there really was no chance. And I couldn't lead the way because I had three of their vehicles in front of me and it was just impossible to pass them. So what we ended up doing was continuing to engage. So another dynamic then is when you make contact, at least back in 09, when you made contact, I'm on the radio, I sent it up to hire, hey, we're, we're in contact, troops in contact, this is what's going on, more to follow. And I had a very good battalion commander, SF battalion commander, who allowed us to develop the situation. You know, he wasn't in my ear all the time saying, Blake, I need an update. What's going on? He let me develop the situation and try to figure it out. Uh, but once I sent that troop in contact report, aircraft start showing up out of everywhere because that's the priority. They're going to come. If They might have been doing a route, uh, route escort where they're looking ahead for a, a convoy going down the road to make sure there's no ambushes. They might have been Uh, sweeping, looking for something else in a different area. But when you have troops in contact, they would flex to you. So aircraft started to check in with me on the radio, really with my JTAC, my air traffic controller, who's with me. And I told him, keep the, keep the helicopters, it was Apaches, keep the Apaches two terrain features away. The problem was when the Apaches came up, wherever, wherever we were in Aruzgan, at least, uh, every time Apaches came on station, the bad guys would would just clear out. They'd hear they'd hear the rotors. They could hear them coming. They'd know that Hellfire missiles were coming with the rotors, and they would just they would just evaporate. You'd never see them again. So I didn't want that to happen. I wanted a chance to try to engage these guys who didn't seem like they were posing a, a, a too significant a threat to us at this time. No more RPGs had gone off. I think they spent their their immediate uh, supply of them. And the guys on top of the hill, no sign of them anymore. I, I didn't think that we had anything that was a serious threat to any of my vehicles anymore. And the machine gun fire wasn't doing anything to the MRAPs. So I wanted to continue engage. So I sent the, I had the helicopter stay on station, the Apaches, but stay a terrain feature away. Uh, as this fight is going, I'm trying to get the Afghans to move forward so I can maneuver around, cut the bad guys off and everything. A predator comes on station sent from our JASODIF, that's the Joint Special Operations Task Force headquarters. A predator came on station, armed with a Hellfire, and checked in. I was a, who was, and the JTAC told me, I said, who is this guy? Where did he come from? He said, it must have been pushed by uh, the JASODIF. And that was very common because troops in contact, the JASODIF wants to see what's happening. So it's an extra it's an extra munition that you can use and it's eyes for the JASODIF commander so he can see what's going on without having to bug me. And the predator's quiet. So it doesn't have the problem that the Apaches have of scaring away bad guys, at least at the altitude that they were flying. I never had an issue with that. So not uncommon for for this to happen. But he checks in, uh, checks in with my JTAC, says he's got a one Hellfire that he can expend. I think, okay, great. We're going to hit the biggest burst of muzzle flashes from machine guns. Looks like two, maybe three machine guns buried in some trees. Uh, We'll have him hit that. And that is about... It's this the this one was about 200 meters to my front. And, you know, on the on the 12 o'clock, if 12 was the road in front of me, he was at 11 o'clock, uh, engaging us from down in the valley between two houses and a bunch of trees. We talked the pilot onto him. JTAC says, "Yep, 
We think he's tracking the same thing. He's got a, a rover system, which allows him to see what the UAV is, the UAV pilot is seeing. And we've talked him onto this. And I say, okay. And I say, I want you to confirm with him that he sees the muzzle flashes. I, I hear him call and he says, yep, he says he sees muzzle flashes there. All right, execute. He can execute. So he engages with the Hellfire. And instead of 150, 200 meters to my 11 o'clock, it blows up about 50 meters to my 9 o'clock, immediately off to my left, like parallel to where we are on the road, and 50 meters away. At first, I didn't think it was the Hellfire. I thought it was another RPG that had missed us and, and gone down. It was close enough to us that, uh, that I didn't even think it was... It, wasn't, it didn't go off where I was looking, where I thought it was. So uh, obviously some communication issue there between... I know my JTAC knew where I was looking because I was pointing at it for him, but if it was between us and the pilot or if he thought he saw something and, uh, and, and didn't, I don't know. I don't know what the issue was. But didn't go off where we thought it would. We thought he shot nothing because it just blew up in some trees in a ditch. So we continue the engagement. Eventually, we're, I'm able to get the Afghans together, and we maneuver along up the road far enough, and the, the enemy's kind of moving backward as we do it. And as we start, to, as we finally get to the end and start to come down into the valley, they all disappear. So there, there are other route lines in and out, but firing ceases. Uh, we go and inspect the positions and find a whole bunch of shell casings, but no weapons left. A uh, couple of enemy KIA, um, but not, not too many, three or four. And okay, looks like engagement's over. We establish security and we go to look and some Afghans come out of the village and they go over to where the Hellfire splashed down, to where it impacted, and it turns out that there were civilians there. What the what the pilot had seen were not Taliban fighters with muzzle flashes. There may have been one there. I don't know. Uh, maybe he did see muzzle flashes. But what what definitely was there was an Afghan mother with two of her young kids and her sister, somebody else in her family. So we've got four. Uh, two of which are children, Afghans, who were, who were really direct hit by this Hellfire missile. So gruesome scene, no, no chance of survival. Uh, we're, we start helping the maintain security, make sure that we've got what's going on. And a lot of our security is machine guns on MRAPs in an overwatch position. So we've got that. Uh, but now we have the task of looking with these Afghans, trying to figure out what to do, uh, help clean up you know, body parts get together so that they can do some sort of burial service. And they, they start asking me what happened, what happened. And I had a bit of an ethical dilemma. So I knew that a hellfire had hit there. I knew we were going to help them, but I didn't tell the Afghans that it was our munition. I told them I thought that an RPG from up top had hit down there and it happened to hit them. Um, it didn't make any difference to the U.S. policy. We were going to what we ended up doing. Took took the family members back with us with the remains. We took two members of the family back with the remains. Got them into got them escorted into Kandahar. We, we you know we I coordinated a flight to get them to Kandahar so that they could meet with the um, I, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a casualty a, an Afghan casualty affairs officer who did that stuff at the big headquarters. So we got them linked up with them. They got, I think, a monetary payment and whatever whatever the, the coalition and definitely America could do for them, um, they, they got. 
but I never told them that I thought it was an American munition that had killed them. I told them I thought an RPG fired by the bad guys up top had done that. Uh, one, I didn't want to hurt America's credibility, the coalition forces' credibility in the valley, uh, and I wanted to try to turn their opinion against the Taliban a little bit. I kept pointing to them that we had been ambushed. We came here to try to see what we could do to help the people in the valley and were ambushed as we came in and that some of them were killed by the Taliban when they ambushed us. And that's the, that's the story that I told them. Um, I don't know whether they believed me or not. I think it helped the deception, I guess, that I had sent helicopters. I'd never brought the helicopters in. They knew that Apaches had things that made explosions. You know, they wouldn't call it a hellfire, but, but they knew that the Apache helicopters came with munitions from the air. Um, no one ever saw the Predator. It was flying high enough that I never even saw the thing. I mean, I was looking in other places. But um, I don't think that they knew it was there, so I kept telling them we didn't have helicopters. This wasn't me. Um, I still, I, I wonder sometimes, well, I, I sent that up my chain of command to and explained exactly what was going on so that when they got to Kandahar, they would, they would hear the it, it, it's a decision for the next person, I suppose. But if they wanted to, they could continue with that story. And I never heard from them again. Um, we we got them sent to Kandahar. I confirmed that they were linked up with the right people to help take care of them. Uh, and that was that was it for me. Now, there was a big investigation uh, into the into the incident because civilian casualties. And I think there probably were some repercussions for the UAV um, pilot program. I, I still remember his call sign because at the time, at least, I blamed him for it. I don't know whether that's right or not. I don't know exactly what he saw, but I know I thought I talked him on to where we saw machine gun muzzle flashes coming at us continuously, and that is not where he sent his munition. So so I don't, I wasn't involved with the investigation. I don't know what eventually happened with that either. I was back on my tiny little cop trying to take care of a bunch of Afghans. Uh, and manage the missions for the rest of the way. But unfortunately, because all that happened, and now we were dealing with trying to deal with the repercussions of that, I never got to finish sweeping Langar Valley. You know, I did what I did under fire, trying to maneuver on the bad guys uh, and get them out. And we did have a few enemy KIA, and we had a few captured because as we were dealing with all this, we had some military-aged males come up asking for medical help, which was not uncommon back then. This is not the only time this happened. They, they came out asking for medical help, and I have very, very highly trained medical guys on the SF team. The, my 18 Deltas are, are they're almost like physician's assistants. They're, they're very highly trained. So, uh, so we look at them, and they say, sir, these guys are all definitely hit by gunfire, you know, within the last hour. So, okay. So we, br we brought them back with us and sent, we, we took care of them and brought them back with us and took them to get further care and get detained because they were engaged in the gunfight. Um, at least that's what, that's what we thought. They, they said they weren't, they were, they were minding their own business in their house, of course, but this was a common, common refrain. Uh, and people who, people who come forward with gunfire wounds who are military-aged males immediately after engaging us generally got detained. Uh, and that's what happened in this case as well. So that was my last 
that was my last foray into Langar Valley, unfortunately. I tried to put together another one with a bunch of international forces to go back and just timed out. Never, never, never happened again for us and never, never made it back there, at least in my experience. How did your team react to the civilian casualties? It was a really gruesome, gruesome scene and guys were, guys were emotional about it. Um, kind of ran the gamut. I mean, some focused, and this probably included me, focused immediately on what they had to do. You know, I have a lot to go on between talking to hire, coordinating assets, trying to get the patrol, make sure the patrol's doing what it needs to. Some of my guys were doing that. Others were with the interpreter talking to the local Afghans and helping them pick up, you know, bloody scarves out of trees and, and other things, images that will stay with them and me for the rest of my life, I'm sure. Um, so never really talked about it again and not never talked about it again, never really went over the emotional impact of it later. And I think that's probably normal. It's just not something that in my experience, um, my soldiers have tended to do. You've got other stuff to do. Let's go on and do the mission. Um, but I'm certain that, that it had, that that scene had an impact for certainly for some of them. How did your company and battalion command react? Uh, they were very understanding. Um, first, my, my company commander immediately said, I reported to him, this is what I think happened. No, I'm not, yeah, I told you I deceived the Afghans. I did not deceive my company commander, to be, clear, to be clear. Got on the radio, said, sir, this is what happened. We engaged with a hellfire. Didn't go where we intended it to go. And, and the, it looks like four Afghan civilians were killed by the hellfire. However... The Afghans don't know this. This is not what I'm telling them. So I was I was entirely honest, sending it up at the chain of command. And he said, and my company commander said, understand, we're going to do what we can for the Afghan family. Uh, don't see a need to disclose the cause of the explosion. Okay. So uh, so I suspect that that's the story that continued to go forward. I suspect. I don't know. I mean, maybe once you got up to, to a higher level of command, uh, I don't know what happened once it got to his boss, the, the battalion commander who's a colonel or the group commander of the one star. I don't know. I don't know what happened at those levels anymore. But everyone was supportive. Um, n I, my guys, my guy, nobody faced any repercussions or, or anything like that. It was, okay, let's, what's, what's the next mission? Everybody understood what we were trying to accomplish. A lot of support for trying to go into that place and try to root out this rat's nest that had been harassing uh, friendly convoys coming through the route for a long time. So, so it was kind of a high visibility operation that had a lot of support. I mean, there was, there was, nobody felt good about the way that it turned out, either operationally trying to disrupt this place or tactically with the civilian casualties that came out. Um, but, but no, no, nothing other than support from the chain of command. I was, I was, I was, you know, I was happy with that. After the hellfire strike, did that change your view of close air support and the role of aircraft in your missions? I think I was a little bit bitter about it's showing up at all because the the primary purpose was in my opinion the primary purpose was to give you know my two higher headquarters eyes on what i was doing you know and as a junior officer you've you're out there you've got autonomy you're making decisions you control the battle space now what's this thing doing that i didn't call for in my airspace and now it just blew up a bunch of civilians and ruined my mission 
So I was I was bitter about that for a while. Now I'm a little more senior. So recall the introduction. I'm now almost 20 years of service in. I'm a lieutenant colonel. I know exactly why it was there, and it was it was largely that to give my sort of senior sort of commander uh, a better idea of what was going on. But but I appreciate the intent a lot more. He wanted to know probably what what was going on and provide me an additional asset that I didn't have to use uh, without bugging me all the time and being over my shoulder. So American troops in contact, I understand now, that's that's a SIG act that goes all the way up the chain of command. You know, and then everybody's waiting, or is anybody hurt? What's the outcome of it? Do we have, are we going to have to award Purple Hearts or anything worse because of, because of this engagement? So as a, as a, with a little more seasoning on me, uh, I don't have the, the bitterness about the Predator showing up anymore. I wish that the engagement hadn't gone the way that it had, but I'm, I'm, less, I'm less willing to assign blame for that. And I'm, not, and, I, and I'm not, I've gotten over the bitterness about it showing up. I see exactly why the battalion commander had it there. Um, and, and what's the downside for him? Okay, he can see what his captain patrol leader is, is doing. What, what's the downside of that exactly? Well, if you're the captain, it seems like somebody's looking over your shoulder. But in today's army, uh, there are a lot of assets that that guy looking over your shoulder can bring. So what if something had happened to my vehicle and my warrant officer's vehicle simultaneously? Now I just lost my, my means of communication. Well, he'd know about it if uh, if he has eyes on. You know, he'd see the giant explosion or whatever happened. So, yeah, I, I was bitter at the time, for sure. Blake, thanks for that story. As we watch the situation in Afghanistan change from day to day, are there any lessons you've taken away from it as a whole, or you think the Army should take away from it as a whole? Well, I think I've been reflecting on this a little bit. A lot of people are wondering, nobody knows what's going to happen in the future in Afghanistan, like in the immediate future. So we'll see what that looks like and what the legacy looks like over there. But I think that our experiences over there provide a useful legacy for the U.S. Army. We've learned how to work through and with partners a lot better. We've learned a lot better what warfare looks like in that part of the world, which is going to remain a hotspot for a long time. I would not be surprised to see American forces back over there for the next generation of fighters, if American fighters, warriors, if Iraq and Afghanistan were the two defining conflicts for my generation of soldier. Uh, we don't know what the next defining conflict will be for lieutenants coming in now. And it may be very different. It may be something in Asia, but it may also be in the Middle East. So I think the lessons that we took for fighting in the desert, fighting in that kind of human terrain, uh, fighting with an enemy who, who doesn't match us technologically or in terms of combat power, but is resourceful, funded externally, provisioned externally, and uses irregular weapons and tactics, such as IEDs, such as hiding in civilian populations, I think our army will is better for having learned those lessons and coming through this experience. Blake, thanks for coming on this episode of The Spear and sharing with us an emotional story. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. 
What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.